Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Good morning, Christchurch London Central Service. How are you doing today? Marvellous. Well, uh, we are on week eight of a series of talks looking at the life of a guy called David through the Old Testament books of 1 and 2 Samuel. And to be honest with you, the topic for today is a little bit of a tricky one. Uh, I realised I had lost the lottery of sermon allocations when the email for this series got sent out. Uh, the email literally read like this, week one, the chosen one, Liam Thatcher. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> no surprises who sets the sermon titles in this series. Uh, week two, the giant killer, last Du Christensen. I'm like, ooh, check him out, there we go. Imagine my disappointment then when I scroll down to today, week eight, only to read The Rejected King, Andy Tilsley. <laughs> my specialist subject. So uh, uh, we are going to be looking at a very challenging period during David's life today that largely encompasses 2 Samuel chapters 13 through to 19. And in particular, we're going to be looking at the subject of regret, because this is a period where David got things very badly wrong. And I think regret is a topic we can all relate to. We all know what it is to look back on our past and mistakes we've made and to wish that we'd done things differently. I was listening to a talk recently which said that the single most common expressed emotion between people in conversation is love. Love is more commonly expressed than any other emotion. But the second most commonly expressed emotion surprised me because apparently it is regret. Oh, I wish I hadn't done that. Oh, I wish I'd made the most of that opportunity. Oh, I wish I'd asked that person out on a date. Oh, I wish I'd never asked that person out on a date. Oh, I wish I hadn't eaten that. Wish I hadn't made that mistake. Wish I'd tried giving that a go. Regret is almost as common as love, but it carries a unique sting to it. You see, it's not as simple as wishing that life had turned out differently. It's acknowledging that things would have been different and would have been better if it hadn't been for me. That's why regret is so much harder to bear than other forms of disappointment. I might be disappointed that Wolverhampton Wanderers did not get promoted to the Premier League last season, but I don't regret it because I bear no personal responsibility. Regret kind of gnaws at the conscience because I know it was in my power to change the pain in which I find myself right now. And I think one of the most brutal and most raw stories of regret in the whole Bible comes from the section of King David's life that we're going to be looking at today. The seeds of which we looked at last week through his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. But from that point on, things start spiraling downhill very quickly and the regrets only get bigger and more painful. In fact, to give you a picture of how dysfunctional David's life and family is, the issues in his life and family that we're going to be looking at today include adultery, polygamy, substance abuse, years of total estrangement, vandalism, open hatred, rape, murder, and incest. Anyone here got a family like that? This is too hardcore for Jerry Springer or Jeremy Kyle. We've learned a lot from what David got right during his life. What about what he got wrong? It's what I love about the Bible. It doesn't paint people simplistically, like here's the goodies and here's the baddies and we're supposed to be like the goodies. No, it paints people as they are, warts and all. So what do we learn from David's mistakes? How do we avoid a life of regret? 
want to pay credit at the outset of this talk to a brilliant author and speaker in the States called John Ortberg. Massive fan of his work. Just presume the best bits of this talk are his work rather than mine. And we're going to be walking through 2 Samuel chapters 13 through to 19 together to see what we can learn. How do we avoid a life tainted by regret? Let us begin. 2 Samuel 13. David's eldest son is a guy called Amnon. It's a painting by Guccino from around about 1649, 1650. Some wonderful art through history depicts moments of this story. I'll be showing them throughout this talk. And Amnon ends up lusting after a woman called Tamar. She is David's daughter by another woman. So Amnon is lusting after his half-sister. And the feelings, we're told, are so intense, they end up making him physically sick. David... Amnon's father seems not to notice this. That passivity is significant. We'll come to that in a moment. But another relative comes to Amnon and helps him hatch an evil plan. He tricks Tamar into coming to his bedroom. He asks her to have sex with him. And when she refuses, he physically forces her against her will. And when he is done with her, very, very dark story this. We're told his feelings switch to Samuel 13, 15 whereby he ends up hating her even more than he once loved her. This is the total dehumanization of his own sister. Tamar ends up telling the truth about what happened with great courage and a great personal risk to herself because she has no power. She's about the only person in this whole sordid story who emerges with any credit. And when David hears about what's happened, we're told 2 Samuel 13, 21, he is furious, he is fuming. But then we, the reader, along with poor Tamar, are left waiting for David to do something, to say something, to show a small measure of the courage that she herself has shown, only he does nothing. He's got all the power of the kingdom at his disposal. He's the king, for goodness sake, and he does nothing. And while David is passive, Tamar is taken in by her full brother, Absalom. It's a painting by Cabanel from 1875, which I think well depicts the rage in Absalom's face as he comforts his distraught sister. Meanwhile, the text tells us not just weeks and months, but two years go by and David does nothing, doesn't lift a finger, doesn't say a word on behalf of his own daughter. You see, this is David's First mistake, he is passive, he is inactive, he does nothing. And the first antidote to avoiding a life that is tainted by regret is making a decision to do what needs to be done, to confront what needs to be confronted. Really interesting findings when it comes to regret literature because there's a whole load of research in this area. I want to imagine a scenario. This is based on an illustration in a book called Stumbling on Happiness by a brilliant psychologist called Daniel Gilbert. I want you to imagine for a moment that I stopped the sermon now and I launched a dance competition on the stage here at the front of the Mermaid Theatre. Some of you are smiling like, let's just do that right now, shall we? No. And if you want to take part, you've got to come to the front on your own, strut your stuff, and the best dancer will win £1,000. Well, there's two ways I can experience regret here. The first is, is if I take part. I come to the front, I pull off all my best moves, you know, the woo moves that wooed joy 12 years ago. <laughs> and you will laugh at me, I embarrass myself, and oh, I can't believe I did that, and I experience regret. The second way I experience regret is if I think to myself, you know what, I know how bad a dancer I am. I'm going to give in to fear, don't want to make a fool of myself, I won't take part. And one by one, I watch you lot come to the front on your own and pull off your best moves. Well, I have seen 
Many of you dance over the years. And let's be honest, it ain't pretty. And as you dance, I think, oh, you're not very good. I could have been in with a chance of winning the thousand pounds. It looks so much fun. And oh, I experience regret. In one scenario, I try and fail. In another, I give in to fear and don't try at all. In which scenario do you think you experience more regret? Well, the research is pretty compelling in this area. Most people expect to feel more regret through trying and failing. Most people would rather be teased for being boring and giving in to fear than they would be through making a fool of themselves. And yet again and again, studies show we actually experience more regret through giving in to fear and not having a go, through missed opportunities. You see, if I came to the front now and pulled off all my best dance moves, I would embarrass myself. You would laugh. But those feelings of regret, on average, apparently fizzle away after around about a couple of weeks. But the regrets from missed opportunities can last for many, many years. Put simply, one practical application from this talk is this. If you are single, you are likely to experience less regret if you ask somebody out on a date at the end of the service, even if they say no or you go on the date and it ends badly. And you are likely to experience more regret if you give in to fear and don't ask anybody out on a date in the first place. That should make tea and coffee an interesting prospect at the end of the service. Everyone's like, don't look at anyone apart from Andy right now. Focus on the preacher. People experience regret more through the things they don't do than the things they do do. That is David. Two years go by for Tamar in Absalom's house. He does nothing. Why? Text doesn't say. Maybe he's scared. Confrontation, scary thing to do. Maybe he feels guilty. Why? Because Amnon looked at a woman, he wanted her, and he took her. Who does that remind us of? Maybe David is thinking, if I bring this up, everyone will remember my guilt. I just can't go there. We don't know. But fear and guilt are just two of the emotions that can steal away the proactivity needed to do what needs to be done, to overcome a life tainted by regret. Can I ask you the first of a few rhetorical questions I'm going to ask you this morning? Is there anything going on in here right now that is stopping you from doing what needs to be done? People regret more the things they do not do than the things they do. Put simply, if you want to overcome a life tainted by regret, you've got to be proactive. You've got to apply for that job. You've got to ask that person out on a date. You've got to step up to leadership responsibility. You've got to take that invitation to do public speaking. You've got to decide to have the awkward conversation. You've got to say to yourself that guilt and fear will not hold me back. The great author Mark Twain once wrote these words, 20 years from now, you will be more disappointed by the things you did not do than the ones you did. So throw off the bowline, sail away from the safe harbor, catch the trade winds in your sails, explore, dream, discover. David instead plays it safe. Back to the story. So two years go by for Tamar in Absalom's house. Two years of passive fury for David. Two years of brooding vengeance for Absalom. Absalom, in this story, is slowly becoming a very dangerous man. And after two years, Absalom eventually decides if his father is too gutless to do anything about the situation, he'll take matters into his own hands. So he finds a pretext to get Amnon out of the city, and he says to his servants, first, let's get Amnon drunk, and then we'll act. Interestingly, one of the very same tactics that David used on Uriah. Where did Absalom learn to behave this way? 
And with Amnon out of the city at Absalom's feast, Absalom avenges his sister Tamar by murdering his half-brother Amnon, painting by Niccolo di Simone, depicting this moment in the story. 2 Samuel 13, 26 to 27, when David hears, he wept bitterly and mourned for his son every day. Now with Amnon, the eldest son, out of the way, Absalom's in an interesting position. He's the heir to the throne, but he's just killed the son of the king. So he flees Jerusalem and goes into exile for three years. Three years in exile. 2 Samuel 13, 39, and the spirit of the king longed to go to Absalom. But he did not go. David stayed at home. He does nothing. 2 Samuel 14. Joab, who is kind of David's chief of staff, susses kind of what's going on. And he kind of tricks David into making a promise. That if Absalom returns from exile to Jerusalem, that he won't be harmed. David makes that promise. So Joab, all excited, goes, gets Absalom out of exile, brings him back to Jerusalem, and then David makes his second tragic mistake. Most of you will know the story that Jesus told in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. A wayward son returns to his father. And the father runs and embraces him, welcomes him, kisses him. Such love, such acceptance, such forgiveness. There is none of that in this story. 2 Samuel 14, 24, the king said, Absalom must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. That's David's second mistake. He does not show his face. All the emotion in here, the grief, the pain, the disappointment, the anger, the regret, keeps it all in. More than anything, he needs to talk to his boy. He needs to let his boy in. Instead, he keeps him at arm's length. 2 Samuel 14, 28, Absalom lived for two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. Can I ask you a question? Who needs to see your face? If there is stuff going on in here that is stopping you living the life that you could be living, who needs to see your face? Loneliness? Inadequacy? Fear? Shame? Who needs to see your face? You know, too often the church, which should be the one place where we can be honest about the baggage in here, is the place where we feel the need to hide this stuff the most. It should not be that way. You know, if you are newer to church, and you've come along thinking, oh, I can't let anyone see what's going on inside. They keep it all hidden. Believe me, I have known these people for a long time. They are messed up. You are welcome here, okay? <laughs> this is a broken bunch of people. Who needs to see your face? Who do you need to be honest with about what's really going on inside? heard a really amusing story about truth-telling. Honesty, it's from a guy called Eugene Peterson, a brilliant author and speaker, author of the message, translation of the Bible, amongst other things. And a few years ago, wrote kind of his memoirs. It was called The Pastor. And he told a story about early in his ministry when he was planting a new church. And every month, he had to send off a report to the denominational headquarters as to how it was going. But he never, ever got a reply back. And he started to think, I don't think anyone is actually reading these reports. So he had a crazy idea. He thought, I know, I'm going to start making up some outrageous stories about what's happening in this church plant just to see if anyone's reading these things. And he's a brilliant author and speaker, so he's really good at it. So his first report, he starts talking about how he's developed a little bit of a drinking problem. 
And he can't give sermons on Sundays without having a few drinks before the service. He wrote in his report, last weekend, I was so sozzled I couldn't finish my sermon. They had to bring in another leader to finish my talk. He hears nothing back from headquarters. So the next month, he writes another story about how he's having an affair with a woman in the congregation. And they got caught carrying on in the main meeting group. He writes in his report, I knew I was going to get fired now, but no, it turns out the church is filled with swingers, and next weekend attendance had doubled. This is Eugene Peterson, who wrote the Bible, writing these words I hasten to add. Still, nothing from headquarters. So the next month he writes a story about how they started using hallucinogenic mushrooms for communion, <laughs> and it was the greatest worship they'd ever had. Still, nothing from headquarters, and he keeps this up for three years. Well, eventually the church graduates and there's a little party and people from HQ come to celebrate. Not a church plant anymore. And Eugene Peterson says, hey, did you guys read those reports I was sending every month? Oh, yes. Took them really seriously. We read every word. And Eugene Peterson says, that's a surprise. And he told them about the drinking problem and the affair and the hallucinogenic mushrooms. He writes four words, they were not amused. But here's the interesting thing. No one wanted to admit to not reading the reports, even in leadership. They all wanted to appear like, I've fulfilled all of my responsibilities, I've got it all together. That is King David. Now, what I find interesting about him, after his affair with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah, he writes a very moving prayer of confession to God, Psalm 51, very well known, you can read it. He can pour out his confessions to God, but he cannot be honest with his own son. Could that be anybody here? You can be really honest in your prayer life. To the body of Christ, your brother and sister to your right or left. Now let's just keep all that hidden. Who needs to see your face? Just at this point, I just really, really want to plug the steps course. It starts today. It is the most wonderful opportunity in a safe and supportive environment to be honest about the stuff that's going on inside. I have loved reading the testimonies from the last course. One of my favorites. Lady who for two to three years had been struggling with a recurring nightmare of powerlessness and anxiety. She goes on the steps course and she's honest about the fears she's struggling with. She wrote that during the course she didn't really feel much happening but the first night after the course finished the nightmare came back only this time in her dreams the ending changed. And she had power to do something about it. The following evening, the same thing happened. A recurring nightmare had been replaced by a story of overcoming. That is the power of confession. You know, I can say with confident authority that King David could have done with a steps course. What about you? Who needs to see your face? If you haven't got the time to sign up, email pastoral support at christchurchlondon.org. Be honest with the person you came to church with today. Grab me one Sunday. Who needs to see your face? David is passive. David's inactive. He does nothing. When I overcome a life tainted by regret, make a decision. I've got to do something about this. David hides his face. We need to be honest about the stuff that can hold us back. Back to the story. So two years go by for Absalom and David in the same city. And Absalom ends up engineering a meeting with his father by setting fire to the royal fields. Interesting way of getting a meeting with your own dad. And David and Absalom finally meet. But they don't say what needs to be said. They don't talk about what needs to be talked about. You can be face to face with someone and not show your face. And we can safely assume that resentment and hatred grows inside Absalom because on the back of this meeting, 
Absalom goes to the city gate, which is kind of the place where business is done. And if ever anyone comes with a problem, he says, oh, no. You won't get that solved here. The system is broken. But if I was king, I'd solve it for you. We're told Absalom was the most good-looking guy in the whole kingdom. When people saw him, they bowed down before him. He'd raise him up and embrace him and treat him as an equal. And we are told, in due course, Absalom steals the hearts of the people of Israel. Absalom keeps this up for four years. Four years! What's David doing during this time? And at the end of this time, he tries to take over the kingdom. He gets the trumpeters to proclaim, Absalom's now the king! And now it is David who has to go into exile and flee Jerusalem. And to give you a little picture of how broken now the relationship is between David and Absalom, with David in exile, what Absalom does is he sets up a tent on the roof of the palace and he publicly has sex with all of the concubines that David has left behind, we are told, in the sight of all Israel. Because he wants to degrade his father in the most humiliating way possible. You're not sure what a concubine is? Dave and Philippa are on hand to answer that question at the end of the service, just in case you're wondering. And now David who's been in exile before, when Saul was king and pursuing him, now he is there again. Only now he's the king. He's the older one. And this guy who has led so many military campaigns against his enemies before, he now has to lead one more. Only this time it is against his own son. David's men come to him and say, you sit this one out, David. Too risky, they say. David's men go into battle and David's soldiers are victorious and Absalom is killed. His death is one of the weirder ones in the Bible. We're told not only was he the most good-looking guy in the kingdom, but he had the most amazing head of hair. He would grow it and grow it and grow it and only cut it when it became too heavy for him. That haircut happened about once a year, we're told, and the cut hair would weigh about 200 shekels. No one exactly knows what a shekel is. Probably it equates to two kilograms worth of cut hair. Two kilograms worth of hair. I mean, I can only dream of such volume. <laughs> Where was I when these genes were being given out? Don't say standing in the queue somewhere near Gru from Despicable Me. I've heard that joke from my family already, okay? So Absalom, the Vidal Sassoon of ancient Israel, in battle he gets his hair stuck in a tree and he is speared to death. Painting from the 13th century depicting this moment in the story. However I go, it ain't going to be this way. We can safely presume. But now with Absalom dead, the camera pans back to David, watching, waiting, wondering how's the battle gone. And a messenger comes and tells him the rebellion is over. Your throne is safe. The rebel is dead. And in all this time of brokenness and estrangement, there is one word that David has never used. Not when Tamar got raped, nor when Absalom avenged her, not when Absalom went into exile, nor when he returned. Not when David went into exile, he has never ever referred to Absalom as his son. Even before the battle starts, he says, 2 Samuel 18, 5, his only instruction to his shoulders, be gentle with the young man, Absalom. And after the battle, first question he asks, is the young man, Absalom, safe? And the messenger probably guesses what's going on in David's heart, doesn't say. So a second messenger comes, same question, is the young man, Absalom, safe? And this time he tells David, Absalom's dead. 2 Samuel 18, 32, 33, the king was shaken. 
he went up to the room over the gateway and wept. Finally comes a moment of clarity. And David realizes that it is too late. Maybe he imagines all that could have been, but will now never be. Maybe he thinks on all he could have done, should have said, but never did. Finally comes the word. The word that he couldn't say for all of those years. And now it's like he can't stop himself from saying it. It's like the cork is out the bottle and he has to soothe his soul by saying it over and over. 2 Samuel 18, 33, David said, Oh, my son, Absalom. My son, my son, Absalom. If only I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. That is regret. That is David's final mistake. He waits until it is too late. I wonder if he is thinking to himself, if only I'd said this word earlier, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. He had years to put this right. Never did. You see, if you want to overcome a life tainted by regret, it's not enough to make a decision, I've got to do something about this. It's not enough to show your face and be honest about the stuff that could hold you back and rob you of the life you could be living. You have to get on and do it. Get out of your comfort zone. Break through fear. Take a risk. Take a chance. Have a go. Have that tough conversation. Do not wait until it is too late. Do not assign yourself to a lifetime of regret. You know, many hundreds of years later, a carpenter from Nazareth called Jesus talked about regret and a place where it is too late when he talked about hell. Now, just to be clear, I think a lot of what the Bible says about hell is kind of picture language that points to something deeper. You've got to study it to really understand what's going on. For example, sometimes hell is painted as blazing fire. Sometimes as utter and total darkness. Don't take a rocket scientist to realize that fire and darkness cannot coexist. This is metaphor that points to something deeper. But when Jesus talked about hell, He describes it as a place of weeping and wailing. And does anybody know what? Gnashing of teeth. Gnashing of teeth. That is a very vivid, typically Hebrew picture of regret. Very physical reaction to regret. We all do it. You ever been on a golf course? You will hear the gnashing of teeth. Can't believe I played that shot. And we can do that with life too. Can't believe I lived that way. And when Jesus invited people to follow him, he did not just say, follow me, because therein you will find life and life in all its fullness and peace and joy and all that is good. He also warned people as to the alternative. You're not going to live for his countercultural kingdom where you lay down your life for others and then find it all over again, where you serve the needy and the disadvantaged. You give yourself away, but find such joy in it. If you're not going to live for that, what are you going to live for? Money. Pleasure, possessions, power. If you live for that, you will end up, oh, I still need more. It's never enough. Regret is hell. Hell is human regret consolidated. Some of you may have heard of the work of a lady called Bonnie Ware. She was an Australian nurse who worked in palliative care. And she sat with patients through the last two to three months of their lives. And she described how her patients achieved what she called a phenomenal clarity of vision as they approached their last days on earth. And she'd ask them over and over, what are your top regrets? 
What would you do differently? She said, the same themes emerged again and again. Here are the top five. I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. Wish I hadn't worked so hard. I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. I wish I'd let myself be happier. Can you relate to any of them? I'm sure David could. Can I just ask another question? If you are honest with yourself, if I could use spiritual language, if you just allow the Holy Spirit to whisper to you right now, where could you be headed for regret if you don't change the way that you are living right now? Now, I have heard parents of grown-up children say things like, when I was younger, I was at the office too much. Never spent the time I could with them, and now that time is gone. Could you be on that road? Is there a risk you need to take? You don't take it, but like, oh, should have done that. Is there a difficult conversation you need to have? And if you do not have it, you'll know a relationship could be forever fractured. Is there a relationship right now, and it's nowhere near a full-blown affair, but you're starting to cross little lines, little boundaries of being blurred. Don't wait till it's too late. Maybe it's much simpler than that. Last 18 months for us as a church has been really busy. And Joy and I fell into a rut a while ago where, oh, we're just tired, come in every night, just watch TV. Just let the TV shape our thoughts whichever way it wants. Every night, just TV. I got to the point, no, this time, I can't get it back. Could that be you? Can you relate to that? Too much social media. Too much internet. Maybe you're intrigued by the person of Jesus. And you kind of really want to follow him. But something is holding you back. Do not put off what could be the most amazing decision you will ever make. What road are you on right now? What's your trajectory? If there is a choice that needs to be made, choose it. If there is something that you need to do, do it. Don't wait till it's too late. Don't assign yourself to a lifetime of regret. Now this right here is the heaviest moment in the talk. And it would be mean and a little depressing to leave us all here. And I want to leave us with a moment of hope because there is an obvious question that I ask when I get to this point, which is this. What do you do about regrets that you can't change? I've got stuff in my life, in my past, and time's come and gone. I can't do anything about it. What do you do about regrets that you cannot fix? The answer is this. You give it to Jesus and you leave it with him. You see, as David prays this prayer of deep pain, oh, my son, my son, he gives a little clue that points to a deeper reality when he prays these words, if only I had died instead of you. David prays for a substitutionary sacrifice. And as we look at this story through New Testament eyes, we can see that the problem of regret and pain and injustice and sin is dealt with by a substitute by somebody who says, I'll take all of that. You can have my life instead. His name is Jesus. It's not the only time in this section of David's life that he points to Christ. When he goes into exile, 
We're told that he ends up walking up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he goes. His journey almost precisely mirrors that of Jesus many hundreds of years later in Holy Week of all weeks as he journeys to the cross. On the cross, regret is dealt with. I give him my junk and my failings, my mistakes. He gives me his life, his joy, his righteousness. On the cross, God gnashes his teeth. Oh, my son, my son, if only I had died instead of you and on the cross God does. And if you are listening to this talk and you're wondering, is it too late for me? You need to know it ain't too late. It is never too late with Jesus. You may have turned to him a thousand times before. You can do it again today. Fresh start in him. I love how Tim Keller, brilliant author and speaker, puts it. All real life-changing love is costly substitutionary sacrifice. You want to know a love that changes your life? You need a costly substitutionary sacrifice. His name is Jesus. You know what I find deeply encouraging? Is shortly after this moment of great pain in David's life, he writes one of his final prayers. Psalm 30. It was a prayer to be read or sung at the dedication of the temple that his son Solomon would build, where sacrifices would be offered in his place. And he writes these words, I'll exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out the depths. Lord, my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. You turned my wailing to dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. Whatever you have been through or are going through, Mourning can be turned to dancing. Wailing can be turned to joy. On the cross, regret is dealt with. I want to give you a personal, living, breathing example of this. Maybe the band want to come up as I bring us into land. Came across a wonderful article in GQ magazine of all publications, which is not something that I read, I hasten to add. Someone pointed it out to me, but it was about how the Alpha Course, the introduction to the Christian faith, is changing the lives of some of Britain's most brutal prison inmates. And amongst others, it told the story of a guy called Michael Emmett, one of Britain's most dangerous criminals. Uh, Crime was kind of in his family. His father, Brian, ran with the craze. Guy with some dark, dark stuff in his past. And the police tracked him down over many years, locked him up for a long time. And uh, while in prison, Michael Emmett ended up befriending the prison chaplain. He said it was an excuse to get more access to the phone to call his girlfriend. But he ended up going on alpha. And on the Holy Spirit weekend, he encountered Christ and it changed his life. He writes these words. This is a quote from GQ magazine. People started to laugh. People started to cry. I remember the words coming out of my mouth. It doesn't have to be like this no more. My dad, Brian, he's never been the happiest of souls, but he was laughing and laughing. Just amazing joy. Michael Emmett started following Jesus and it changed his life. On the back of this moment, he was transferred to three other prisons. He thought, if Jesus has changed my life through this alpha thing, I'm going to run alpha there too. Made me chuckle. He said, the criminal fraternity is really hierarchical because he was really high up in the hierarchy. When he went to other inmates and went, oi, you're doing alpha. Everyone's like, okay, I'll find it for alpha. (laughs) It's our new recruitment strategy for the autumn term. Oi, you're doing alpha. (laughs) Scores of inmates ended up coming to faith in Jesus. One of them was a guy called Shane Taylor. He was described by police as one of the six most dangerous criminals in the country. Met Jesus, changed his life. He's now out of prison free, helping rehabilitate other offenders. That is the change that Jesus brings. Whatever lies in your past, whatever secret stuff lies in here, 
it ain't too late for a fresh start with Jesus. I doubt your past is as broken as Shane Taylor, Michael Emmett, or even King David. Blank sheet of paper today because of the cross. How do you overcome a life of regret? Make a decision today. I've got to do something about this. Show your faith. Open your heart. Safe place. We're all broken here. Be honest about your struggles. Steps. It starts today. Brilliant opportunity. Email pastoral support. Chat to somebody. Come get prayer. And don't wait till it's too late. And if you have, fresh start is available because of the cross. Oh, my son, my son. If only I had died instead of you and on the cross, God does. Why don't we stand? I think we should just worship Jesus. One song, then we'll close in prayer. Get prayer if that is a benefit for you. Let's just focus on Jesus, our wonderful saviour, who went to the cross, didn't end there. He's alive today and you can meet him afresh this morning. Let's worship. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.